0: You're listening to a sermon from Midtown Presbyterian Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about Midtown and its ministry, please visit us at midtownpres.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. an honor to be able to be able to share and um, with you all. So thanks for having me. Um, I, I do have one question for you all, and that is by a show of hands, how many of you are fans of musicals? That's a lot more than I was expecting. Musicals are one of those things where you either love them or hate them. So well done, all. <laughs> um, I myself love musicals. Um, ev- growing up, every summer I would spend with my grandparents. And my grandma was a huge fan of the theater. And so we, every summer we'd go to as many musicals, as many plays as possible. So when I, when I think of musicals, I often have fond memories of going with my grandparents, um, which is just always sweet. Um, but in 2015, there was a new musical that hit Broadway that was an instant hit. Like, it, people who didn't even like musicals liked this one. Any guesses as to which musical I'm referring to? Hey, there it is, Hamilton. We all became captivated by the story of Alexander Hamilton, as told by Lin-Manuel Miranda, and the incredible music that went along with it. I was lucky enough to get to see Hamilton um, when it was in Gamage in October, and I loved it. I'm still like reeling from it, still listening to the soundtrack. So um, that's me blasting Hamilton in the parking lot. <laughs> Well, there's one line that's weaved um, throughout it in different places, um, and it's anytime Alexander Hamilton sings his name, which I will spare you and I will not sing for you, but he sings, Alexander Hamilton, there's a million things I haven't done, but just you wait, just you wait. And I think that this struck me, because it captures the ambition that I think many of us have, um, that in this one line we relate to this person. There are a million things we haven't done. We make bucket lists, we make goals, we've got dreams. There's a whole, and we just want to pursue those things. Just lots of, there are millions of things. I can think of off the top of my head a million things that I I haven't done. And Hamilton, he was someone who just would not stop pursuing those millions of things. There's literally a song dedicated to how nonstop Hamilton was. And he admits in another part in the play that he has never been satisfied. And I imagine that when you've got a list of a million things that you haven't done and you want to prove that you can do them, that um, it would be really difficult to feel satisfied. Because as soon as you've hit one goal, one thing, you're on to the next thing. What's next? I want more. I'm going to achieve more. I'm going to do. I'm going to do. I'm going to do. I want more. Never satisfied. Constantly looking to feel satisfaction and never quite feeling satisfied. And as we jump into the text this morning in Luke, um, and we read the woe that is spoken by Jesus here. Um, we'll find Jesus saying woe to this very thing, this constantly looking for satisfaction, but finding that they can't get no satisfaction. <laughs> so if you want to read along with me, if you've got your Bible, you want to follow on your app, we're going to be reading from Luke chapter 6, and we're going to be reading verses 24 and 25. Um, that's Luke 6, 24 and 25. And the scripture says this, But woe to you who are rich, for you've already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, um, I pray that your spirit be stirring in us, that you would speak. A word to us this morning that you'd be calling us to a new and transformed life. We long to hear from you, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Now, as we read this, it felt sort of opposite to me. I don't know if you felt that too. Opposite. It felt opposite of what I think the world might claim to be truth. That the rich. Um, the well-fed, all refer to as healthy, and um, those who laugh, those who are happy, that is what the world says is peak living. That's what we should be achieving for, working for. You, we want to be wealthy. We want to be healthy. We want to be happy. So what we're finding here is Jesus is, has turned that upside down, that what the world claims is what we should be lifting up. Jesus is saying no, woe to those. I think of, you know, influencers on Instagram. Wealth, health, happiness, those are what they've curated their perfect squares to represent, represent their wealth, how healthy they are, and these perfectly beautiful, captioned, happy faces. But that's not what we see Jesus lifting up here in Scripture. We've been in this um, woe series Um, for about a month, and we've been looking at these woe statements of Jesus, our fun play on words, woe, where it's almost like a red flag in Scripture when Jesus says, woe, W-O-E. So what does this word woe mean? The Hebrew word for woe um, that is found in the Old Testament, um, used a lot in Isaiah, um, was used as a prophetic judgment of what was to come um, if Israel didn't turn from their sinful ways, saying that they'd be bringing disaster upon themselves. But it was also used as a cry of grief. Um, It mourned Isaiah to see the disasters that the people were bringing upon themselves because of their sin. So the meaning of woe has sort of a dual meaning, that there's this meaning of a warning of a coming judgment, of um, condemning but there's also this meaning of grief. There is deep grief in this word, woe. And so the Greek version um, of the word that Jesus uses here in the Gospels, it's very similar to that with its dual meanings of both condemning and warning of judgment and also deep grief. Jesus is grief-stricken over the people who value their wealth, their health, and their personal happiness over the kingdom of God. And similarly, uh, Jesus' woe serves as a warning of what outcomes may come should we continue to lift up these values over the kingdom. You may have what the present time can offer, satisfaction of desire for material goods, happiness, good reputation in the world, and just thinking that you don't need anything more. I've got it made. What else could I need? There's no need to cry out to God in prayer. For You think that you've got enough, that's it. But Jesus says that there is a time that will come when those things will pass away, and then what will we be left with? So we read here that Jesus is expressing grief and warning for those who find themselves healthy, wealthy, and full of happiness. um, Eugene Peterson's uh, version of the Bible um, called The Message um, says it in a way that it really helped me to wrap my head around. um, So I hope that it maybe helps you as well. And it says this. But it's trouble ahead if you think you have it made. What you have is all you'll ever get. And it's trouble ahead if you're satisfied with yourself. Yourself will not satisfy you for long. And it's trouble ahead if you think life's all fun and games. There's suffering to be met, and you're going to meet it. This is a really, really heavy warning that Jesus does not take lightly. The woeful may not experience apparent discomfort in this life. Um, The mistake that they've made is that their wealth and their overflowing tables and good times are good uh, replacements for the purpose that God has for us. Um, some of you um, might in your Bibles have headings above the chunks of scripture. Um, and you may have noticed that the heading of this scripture um, up above is blessings and woes. So I've delivered you the bad news first. <laughs> to pair off with these woes, Jesus offers blessings. So um, if we were to hop up a little bit ahead into, uh, up to verse 20, it, it says this. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. So for each of the woes, there's a corresponding blessing. But there are these two paths, these two paths of with two different outcomes, but related in a way, and we're faced with them. The real woe here, the real Jesus, red flag, Whoa, is the warning to make this world your heaven. When we look around, you know, we we just prayed for the war in Ukraine, um, another mass shooting. It doesn't take long for us to look at this world and see how dark, how in need of light it is that there is war, that there is suffering, that there is evil. So to make this world your heaven is to put your hope into what is here and now. And that this world will never satisfy. We're, we'd constantly be, if I just had a little bit more, if I just did a little bit more, if I had a little bit more money, maybe a better house or a bigger car or whatever, whatever it might be, those things will pass away. But Jesus says, whoa to our moors and says, there is more, but that more is not here. There is more than what this world has to offer. Jesus is not saying ah, it's better to be poor hungry, hungry than to be rich or well-fed and the like. Because then the question would be, well, does God only love us when we're miserable? And the answer to that is no, of course not. They're promises, though. That's what these are to those who are suffering in this world, and that God still still sees them and loves them and is intent on their thriving. It's important, though, to note here that um, to be blessed does not mean the absence of struggle. If you've ever had to go without food, if you've ever struggled to pay your bills, or if you've ever experienced deep grief, I have to tell you that that does not mean that your struggle has not been real that blessing does not mean the absence of struggle. So let's contrast these woes and blessings. If we have um, the woeful rich and the blessed poor, what do those two things mean? Well, to be poor um, in this instance um, doesn't necessarily just mean one without wealth or one without money, but can also refer to somebody Um, who has a low social status or has been marginalized. So in this time, that would be women, um, those with diseases, Um, and would include that here. But also, the poor may not necessarily mean the poor, and the rich may not mean the rich. Take, for instance, uh, King David, who refers to himself several times as poor and needy in the Psalms. King David, in the literal sense of the word, is wealthy. He has the wealth of a king, And yet in Psalm 40, he writes, But as for me, I am poor and needy. May the Lord think of me. You are my help and my deliverer. You are my God, do not delay. And that King David, even in his wealth and all of his resources and his kingdom and all the things that he had, he was fully aware that he was still a needy, poor person who was in need of a God who could provide what he could not self-seek himself. Then as another example, um, there's Zacchaeus, who is a rich tax collector, um, but who's declared the child of Abraham after he explains his generous redistribution of his wealth. So rich doesn't always mean rich. Poor doesn't always mean poor. And it's the spirit in our hearts that guides us to what that might mean for us. Despite our culture's love of money, I think there are a lot of movies that come to mind when I think of the character arc of the wealthy person who is really unhappy even though they're super wealthy. Um, One of the first um, examples that came to my head, there may be others that come to yours, um, was Rose from the movie Titanic, who is very beautiful, very wealthy, engaged to a wealthy man, you know, on paper she's got it made, and yet she's so unhappy that she's willing to throw herself off of this boat into the ocean because she's that unhappy. That if wealth really were the peak of what we should be achieving in life, wouldn't she, why why would she be in that place? Why would that be where she'd come to? Another example um, I thought of was of Harry Potter. Um, Harry and Potter, he inherited a large sum of money after his parents' death. And his friend Ron, whose family's finances and social status are often the butt of the joke of their enemies, um, their enemy Malfoy. Um, But if you've read the Harry Potter books, maybe you've picked up on this kind of unspoken dichotomy um, of Ron, who several times utters the phrase, I hate being poor. And really, to his core, mean, he hates being poor. And he envies the, the money that Harry has. And then on the other side, there's Harry, who he actually cherishes these handmade sweaters that Ron's mom makes or loves the, this, this home that Ron is so ashamed of because of the love and hominess it's filled with. And that for Harry, he'd give up all of the money in his Green God's bank account just to have his family back or to have the kind of life that Ron himself has had, and yet Ron is yearning for the money that Harry has. So our world may love money, but if we look closely at the stories that we tell, we might find times that we know at the core, at its being, that making wealth the end-all be-all, it comes at a high cost, that it's self-satisfying and it doesn't last. But wealth itself is not the problem. There are plenty of wealthy people who are generous and kind and love Jesus deeply. Jesus issues this woe to the rich, not because wealth is bad, but because in our humanness, we have a tendency that the more we have, the more money we make, the more likely we are to worship it. That the more we have, We worship the gift instead of the giver. And that isn't to say that the less money you have, you're not going to worship it. Because again, in our humanness, we seek self-satisfaction through things, through the means of our bank accounts. And Jesus warns us that if we worship the money, then that will all we will ever receive. Wealth can either be a blessing or a woe. It can bring us joy or it can bring us conflict. But the thing that it cannot bring us is eternal life. We seek financial security as if it could actually make us secure. And Jesus says that it can't, but that he can. Jesus says, blessed are the poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Which means it's now, it's already, the gift has already been given. We are already in a position to receive. And for the next two blessings and woes, Jesus uses the future tense, that for you will be satisfied, you will laugh, or you will go hungry, you will mourn and weep. Jesus points us to the promise of his return. He wants us to put our hope in a time where there will no longer be hunger or sorrow, that this world will pass and everything in it will go with it, and then what will be left? we we won't be found clinging on to our things. The crowd who would have heard this message, they would have either walked away feeling hopeful in a blessing, or their hearts would have been hardened to this hard message, or they would have walked away knowing that something needed to change. And maybe that's us here today. So today, do you need a blessing or do you need a woe? Jesus speaks here to his disciples um, and to a crowd who are listening in. Many of the woes we've learned about in this series, not all of them, but many of them have been geared at the Pharisees, the religious elite. Uh, But these woes here, they're for his disciples, for those who came to listen to him. And if you notice the the pronouns that are used in, in here, Jesus doesn't say they or them, but Jesus says, woe to you who are rich. Woe to you who are well-fed. Woe to you who laugh now. Jesus extends his grief, this deep grief that he has, not just to the Pharisees, but to anyone who has come to listen and anyone who isn't putting into practice his teaching. And it might be here that we begin to maybe see ourselves as the intended audience. In the book of Isaiah, um, Isaiah is issuing these woes, these prophetic judgments to the people of Israel, that if you continue on in this, if you continue on what you're doing, a judgment is coming and he's issuing these warnings. These warnings and it, the people, they're not listening and he's issuing them. And they're all, Isaiah 5, it's like list and list of woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. But then we get to Isaiah 6, 5. And Isaiah 6, 5 says this Woe to me, I cried. I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. At this moment, Isaiah is very aware, not only of the sins of the people, but the sins of himself. He just had a vision of the Lord on the throne and now he's very aware of how unworthy he is to have witnessed this. He is so aware of his sin that now he is issuing his own woe upon himself, a warning for himself. And he realizes that in the presence of a holy God, who is he to have placed his eyes upon him? We may read this as, well, this is definitely me. I am definitely on the receiving end of this woe. I, I am comfortable. I, I am happy. I, I have food in my fridge. The, we might read this as a fact. Like, I am certainly, well, is there hope for me? Am I going to get judgment? What does this mean for me? But we need to remember that this is a warning, that the woe is not fact, it's a warning a warning of the outcome of what is to come, and that in, through this woe, we are presented with an opportunity of repentance. Jesus experiences deep grief, deep grief over our sin, and cries out a warning of what will happen. Jesus' woe is a moment of discipline, because to be faced with an opportunity of repentance is an opportunity for us to be disciplined. Hebrews 12, um, we're told the Lord disciplines those he loves. It says, endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Now, I have I have children, um, and I know that if I let some of their behaviors go unchecked, if I allow the hitting and... If I allow the fighting, if I allow the rudeness to continue on, what kind of people will they grow to be? And I, I don't want that. What I want for them is to be kind and loving people. And to do that, it requires discipline. And if I love, my, I love my children deeply, I want them to be good people. I want them to love the Lord. And if I want that for my children, how much more does God want that for us who loves us even more than I love my kids? In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says that nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. Paul is saying we're being disciplined now so that we'll not be condemned when he comes to judge the world. That instead, because we're his children, that we are being trained and rebuked and disciplined by a God who loves us. This is meant These words come from a God who loves us. He disciplines and preserves and protects those he loves. To be honest with you guys, um, writing the sermon was really difficult for me. I I ran away from it a lot. I procrastinated a lot. I didn't want to do it. Um, Ironically, on one of the times I had set aside to write this, I decided to go shopping instead. And just laughed at the irony of it and asked God for forgiveness that I would put, wanting a new outfit over what scripture has. It was, it was a really humbling and teaching moment for me. And I think that I was avoiding this because the conviction was deep within me. That as I wrote this, I realized that this woe was for me, that I have deeply put a desire for money over so many other things in life. That I have become obsessed with wanting to own a home. That the status I think owning a home is. And it was really, really convicting for me to face that. But it was really humbling to be <laughs> able to, to write a message that God had for me. And I hope that that same feeling and that same humblingness comes upon you. That the spirit is grieved over the sin in our hearts. And it seeks to instruct and discipline us. Not because he wants to proclaim a harsh judgment, but to call us into a new transformed life with him. That if we don't heed the woe, we'll be turning away in our hearts hardening. So let us take this warning instead. Let us turn to repentance. For me... And the convictions I felt stirred in my heart might look different for you. But the woe that's being whispered to your heart, the woe that's there, our question for us this morning is, as you hear it stirring in you, how are we to respond? How are you going to respond? Are we going to turn our hearts and harden them, or are we going to turn to God in repentance and love for him, that he might transform us into a new life? Would you pay with me?